Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Anne Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, Choose Your Own Adventure, we discuss innovations in learning spaces. Okay, here we go. This All is right. it. This is it. This is official. We're in a podcast studio. I kind of can't believe that. We are in a podcast studio. And I can, I don't know if the viewers, I guess they're listeners. They the are listeners, listeners at home can differentiate in the sound quality. I'm hoping maybe they can, and I'm hoping maybe I won't make my chair squeak too, too much. But here we are in a podcast studio. We are no longer recording on Zoom, at least not for this episode. And um, we're introducing our new season, which is going to have the theme of innovation. So when we think about innovation in higher education, Steve, what are we talking about? Well, I guess what prompted us to come up with the idea of innovation is... A couple of things. One of those is the, the new president, Tanya Tetlow, of the university, who's mentioned innovation a few times as one of the, uh, the themes that she's looking at. The other has to do with coming out of the, of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And that, that's been really an undercurrent of our work the past two years in the podcast, thinking about how to respond, how do we begin to teach in virtual and remote spaces, how do we maintain and build community you know when we're our conversations our interactions are mediated when the pandemic started we were forced to innovate or we were forced to adapt let's say maybe not innovate but we were forced to adapt when the pandemic hit and we could no longer be in a classroom together so one of the questions that i have is of the things we learned to do what are we retaining right and so i get super excited about innovation on the one hand. And on the other hand, I like to think about it really skeptically, right? What are the things that were necessary when we couldn't be together in the same space that we're going to throw away now that we can be back in the same room? And what are the things that actually made learning better, more effective, more interesting, more joyful, more sustainable, more efficacious? So that's interesting. So if I were to ask you what is one method or one aspect of teaching during the pandemic that you would not, that you're happy not to do anymore? What, what would that be? What occurs to you? So I was mortified the other day because a student wanted to zoom in and I was like a newbie on Zoom and I got nervous. I got flustered because I'm a little bit out of practice. So doing that hybrid class where some people are on Zoom and some people are in the room, I don't want to do it. I felt really sorry, and I talked to my students about it on Wednesday, and what we decided is we would broadcast the class out on Zoom and ask them to kind of watch it and observe it, but that the extra bandwidth of keeping track of their participation remotely while I was running a dynamic discussion in the classroom was just one extra mental task for me that I was going to take off my plate. And the students mm-hmm. in the room agreed, and that was fine with them. So going forward, if people are absent, log into Zoom, share the screen so they can see the PowerPoint, ask them to mute themselves. They can listen and see the slides in real time if they're well enough to participate that way. But the hybrid um, looking for participation from afar and in the room at the same time is too much. 
you asked me about innovation, and I've been thinking a lot about this because I'm working on an article trying to nail down what we mean when we say innovation and where, how do innovations happen. So I've come up with this sort of framework. I'm not sure if it works, but at this point in my thinking, I, I think that there are three kinds, or okay. three categories. You know me, I love categories. Um, if we were to divide people into two kinds, <laughs> I would be the kind that liked categories. The first, I, I think, category of innovation, if that's the right way to say it, would be intentional. Okay. So we would think about, say, the um, interactive whiteboards as an intentional instructional innovation, right? And the university and many schools invested a lot of money in this technology, and they're not really broadly adapted. They, they didn't spark um, transformations of teaching and learning spaces the way they intended to. They were terrible. I mean, I went into my classroom one year, and I had an interactive whiteboard, and I put something up, and I started writing, and I clicked something with the pen, and I clicked the erase button, and I erased everything I'd written. I didn't understand how to use it. It was not as good as a chalkboard. It felt imposed on me from the outside. It didn't work. That's a perfect anecdote for how intentional integrations often don't work. Right. So another category might be what we could call accidental. So we think about accidental integrations of technology when technology it becomes present in the teaching and learning space unintentionally. So that would be all the students have laptops now or everybody's got a smartphone. And often the response from instructors, from teachers, from the people who kind of maintain that space, the boundaries of that space, mm -hmm. is one of rejection and control. I can't believe all my students have laptops. All they do is open their laptops and they're taking notes, but they're really not taking notes. They're looking at, you know, MySpace because this is some years ago, right? But now we, we rely on students to have laptops. It's like a really effective tool for us, one-to-one -one computing. One of the issues during the pandemic is the, the justice aspects of certain students not having laptops. That's right. And really, isn't it a right for everyone to have a laptop? Which is really a transformation from where we were 10 or 15 years ago. The same thing now really is with smartphones, right? Yes. Certainly in K-12 environments, but the same in, in, in higher education. How do I get my students to put their phones away? They're always looking at their phones. And, and so that's hardware. But we can even think from the software application side, something like TikTok. How can we teach with TikTok? How can we use TikTok as an instructional tool? Now, it's not designed as an instructional tool. No. But theoretically, it could have educational applications. So those are examples of accidental integration, which even in this you know, very cursory overview can tell you where the innovations are really coming from if we think about it. Right. right. The third is related to the pandemic, which I'm calling coercive. Sure. You have no choice. You must teach remotely. You have 10,000 instructors at Fordham University, all of them now required to teach remotely. And the response, it, it varied the way people respond to any kind of change. Some people just, I'm taking sabbatical, or I'm retiring, or I'm not going to teach this semester however way I can manage that. Others tried to, as best they could to adapt, and they had varying degrees of what they would consider to be success based on their ability to manipulate the technology. And then other people were, were really committed to being what we would call innovative, right? right? What are some new and exciting ways I can teach in this remote modality? 
But the coercion is the fact of the pandemic and that we couldn't be in the classroom anymore. So if we want synchronous learning, that's happening over Zoom or some similar video conferencing technology. So if you'd never learned that before, this was your time. March 2020 was the moment when you had to figure it out. Right. So the, the issue now, I think, is returning. You know, you know, we're sort of post-pandemic, right? We're coming back to face-to-face teaching and learning. What did we learn and what are we going to keep? So now I'm circling back to your original point. If everyone, by everyone I mean, you know, large percentages of students and instructors now have experiences of technologically mediated teaching and learning, Mm -hmm. what can we take from those experiences to think about innovating face-to-face environments? And also, how do we persuade people to come back to the face-to-face environment when we spent two years convincing them that remote learning is just as effective. So why, why am I going to schlep now? Why can't I do this from home? Right, right, right. I think that's a good question. And I think one of my answers is if you're coming to class is the place where you get to talk, right? So there's a dynamic back and forth in the classroom discussion that's really hard to manage with a couple people hybrid. Where if everyone's on Zoom, I can manage that. If everyone's in the room, I can manage that. I never got great at managing both. And so one of the things that you offer in the classroom is that sense of the dynamic conversation, right? But I think that's, that's such a big challenge of teaching, isn't it? Is we, I think you and I share a sense that Instead of having the strict attendance policies of yore, what you want to do as a teacher teaching in a classroom face-to-face with students in the space is to make that 75 minutes so valuable, so worthwhile, such an important part of learning the material that the course sets out to learn that it's worth it to the students to make the commute, to come to that space and be together And so part of that for me is about community. So one of the innovations in my classroom that has absolutely nothing to do with technology is something I learned from Christiana Zenner, professor of theology. We interviewed her very, very early on in season one, was about the check-in. And I start every class with a really quick check-in. And I alternate between check-ins that are like, what's your favorite breakfast for a Tuesday morning when you're in a rush? We just kind of laugh and share something very light to what's something in the reading that you hope we get a chance to talk about today, where I'm really asking students to listen to each other and I learn what they're interested in before I've said anything. And that check-in is so powerful for making students feel invested in each other's learning. And even now that it's still only September, they're getting to know the kinds of things that this student is interested in as opposed to the kinds of things that they are interested in, right? And so they're getting to know kind of intellectual affinities and intellectual differences. And they can see like, oh, that's right. She's a poli-sci and philosophy major. She's coming at this from a different point of view. That's really interesting to me. So that's great. So, you know, it's interesting here in, in the library where the podcast studio is, they're rebuilding the computer labs, the lower level of, of the library, okay, had a bunch of computer labs, and they're taking them out, right? No more computer labs. Okay. And so that's 
in response to students having mostly, I'm not saying no computers, but the, the notion of the lab, they're rethinking that. When I was in college in the 80s, I didn't have a computer. So I would take whatever I'd typed or written by hand and go to the lab to write that. That is so far in the past now. So even though we still have issues of equity with technology access, by and large, undergraduates have some kind of computer. Right. So if the we, we need a different way to think about how we're using, how we're integrating technology into spaces and, and thinking that, well, the space doesn't necessarily need to provide the technology. This is a technology space, right? but people are bringing their own technology to that space. So what is it about the space that makes it conducive to that kind of activity? So that's a really interesting problem to think about what those spaces should look like. And that's a constantly shifting thing, right? It might be very high-end software. It might be a soundproof room such as the one we're recording in right now, right? It might be video camera or, you know, some kind of video editing technology that takes up too much memory for your laptop. So it's thinking about specialized kinds of tools that the typical user doesn't have access to. Right. If we're thinking about the, this construction of accidental and intentional, in a space like light, it's an intentionally created space, but it's not coercive in the sense that, well, it's, it's 30 laptops lined up in a row or 30 desktops in a row, and you sit at row three, desk five, and that's your computer, and you're going to work on this. Rather, you were talking earlier about the notion of play, playing with playing inside the space, a kind of an intentional play. And so innovation really might, it's, it's not that the space is innovative. It's that we're trying to develop spaces where innovation can happen. And, and I think this is coming from maybe two directions, right? Okay. One is, is this idea of reconceptualizing, right? So we have a computer lab that doesn't have computers. How do we begin to rethink the space and how people with technology will operate in that space? The other is recontextualizing. Let's take a sewing machine, which is this really pretty ancient now to my thinking, 100 years old, technology, and see what a modern person makes of this technology. How do they begin to use it in different ways? How does a 19-year-old integrate a sewing machine into her learning? What right. does that look like? Right. There's a wonderful engineer I follow on TikTok, a woman engineer who talks a lot about issues of feminism and, and engineering. And she was talking about how much she loves to knit and how many women engineers she knows love to knit. And she said sometimes she meets a fellow woman engineer and they say, well, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed, but I love to knit. And she's like, stop being embarrassed. Engineering is knitting. Knitting is engineering. The kind of counting and adapting of patterns, thinking about how a two-dimensional plan will work on a three-dimensional body, thinking about how if I want this cable knit sweater to be sized for someone that the pattern doesn't imagine as they have a body that's a different size, I have to do engineering. So she said, it's not accidental that a lot of engineers love to knit it's actually the same kind of thinking, right? And so one of the reasons why, you know, when I remember talking to Fleur many years ago about 
what the makerspace at Fordham should be, I was so insistent on and so delighted that she shared my insistence that we have a sewing machine for precisely those reasons. Is that I'm just like that crafting with your hands helps you build and make things and makes it real, makes helps you make these ideas feel real to you so that you can move back and forth between two and three dimensions, between abstract and concrete. And, you know, that kind of flexibility is so important for creative thinking. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that fits really well within within our conversation about returning to physical from virtual spaces, yes. right? Beginning to revisit the use of objects in our instructional practice. So this idea of the 3D printer or fabricator, I struggle to think about like, okay, how would I use a 3D printer in my teaching? And TikTok, which has come up a few times in this conversation as a really exciting innovation, has an account where this guy is 3D printing topographical maps of every country. And the latest one I watched was a 3D topographical map, tiny, you know, they're like game board pieces, they're not huge, of Afghanistan. And the country is almost entirely vertical. Right. So then he's talking about what that means, what... What would, it, what would it do to live in that space? That How does the topography affect the politics, the culture, So we the think food? about the wars, the political right. history of Afghanistan. Now, obviously, it's more complex from the topography, but it opens up another avenue of analysis through the use of this object that wouldn't necessarily be so apparent at first. I think it's the intentional acquiring of a 3D printer and the accidental viewing of this TikTok has right? shown you an application like, that oh, you couldn't wow, have. So right. cool. Oh, suddenly, you know, it's you got chocolate in my peanut butter, right? It's this <laughs> moment where I'm putting together things that didn't normally seem to go together, and I get this whole new thing. So the question is, how do we create spaces where that kind of innovation is possible? So we've really been talking more, I guess, structurally, right? Okay. In terms of the physical, the built environment. And a lot of times as teachers, we work to overcome the built environment like, oh, my chairs are screwed down, right? Right. We were going to do group work and I got assigned a classroom with chairs that don't move. Right. So let's imagine now that those, at least in spaces like light, those physical impediments have been removed. But the other barriers, there are other barriers to innovation which are not external but internal, right? There's something about the the user the teacher the instructor the students stance about or their expectations around teaching and learning that can inhibit innovation so that's really really important and really a much harder barrier to overcome right so in any classroom you have a mix of students who may be quite comfortable with being told the fourth unit is undesigned and we're going to design it together and a number of students who, for whom that's a source of tremendous anxiety. And as the professor, when you're facilitating those conversations about, well, let's talk about what the fourth unit should be together as a class, you have to know that there's a wide range of responses to it's choose your own adventure time, right? Some people feel really inspired by that when I say this is kind of choose your own adventure. And other people say, when you say choose your own adventure, do you mean it would be okay if I chose my own um, 
adventure. <laughs> I'm like, um, yeah, that's kind of. Well, I mean, I think that brings up the, the I think a, a major issue when we think about educational innovation is trust. Yes. Right. So how do I, what does this mean for my grade? Like, I don't understand. Okay, I'm going to attempt this really creative, interesting project, but there's risk involved. There's risk of failure. It, it, it never meets its fruition. It doesn't work out. What, what does that mean? It's just easier for me. It's just, you know, I'm going to read the chapter. Give me the quiz. Right, right, right. right. I want my 85%, and at least I know I've got a solid B in the class. And I can move on with my life, right? This kind of like... Do whatever you want. Make a series of TikToks. Make a podcast. Draw a drawing. Ugh, terrifying. So when, when we talk about trust, it's not just trust in, you know, the micro environment of our class. It's right. really thinking about, is, is this class legitimate? How do I communicate um, as the instructor to my peers and colleagues about what I'm doing in my teaching environment? So again, to revisit the space we're in now, it, it's that kind of behavior, right? 3D printing a, a skull or the topographical map of Afghanistan is immediately celebrated and perceived as legitimate. Okay. So it's a, it's a cultural issue, really, right? Partly. What I bring to a space and what the space is communicating to me about what's legitimate and appropriate. So if I'm teaching a lecture with 200 students in an amphitheater, what, what do we, how do I begin to really conceptualize innovation. What does that look like in that space? So you're talking, I think, about procedural innovations, right? Instead of me telling you where the learning is going to come from and how we're going to demonstrate it, you're going to tell me. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's that's not technological, right? But innovations don't just happen in technological spaces. We can begin to think about what are the kinds of activities I engage in both individually and collaboratively with my students, and how can I make procedural innovations, like change how we're doing things as a first-order innovation? It's not a radical transformation, right? But we're doing something different with an eye on greater agency, collaboration, authenticity, whatever my values might be. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things I think about a lot with that is a tiny, tiny change that's been transformative for me, which is changing from, do you have any questions to what questions do you have? Right? And those little shifts, right? What questions do you have means I expect you to have questions. It means you should have questions, which means you should be actively listening and attending to what's going on. You should be coming to class, having done the reading, thought about the reading, curious about the reading, matching the reading up against what's happened in class discussion and seeing something that maybe doesn't quite fit or that is not perfectly described for you yet and being able to articulate what you still are eager to learn. That's putting a lot of responsibility on a student. That changes even a pure lecture into something where the student has some agency. Yeah, that's that's a great, great point. And so the difference there is, do you have any questions? I I just lectured for an hour. Do you have any questions? (laughs) So that communicates like I shouldn't have any questions. Um, So as you were speaking, I was thinking about you know, I have pronouns in, in my email and on my Zoom handle and so on. And so 
what, that's an innovation, right? That's something different. That's a change. And what does that do? Now, I see it as minor, right? I'm just writing these words. I'm communicating, okay, these are my pronouns, you know, and, and also a, a technological correlate is in the list now, on, in Banner, in the class list, students, can, I, they, can, they can tell me in their preferred name. Yes. So I can put that in, and they can do it also in, into the attendance sheet. So these are what we, I mean, it's technologically very simple. It's a minor um, innovation, but the implications can be really big. They can loom large kind of culturally in terms of what we're communicating to the students about their identities, how we feel about them, their personhood, their selfhood, and so on. So I think we've moved from, when we started this conversation, to think about innovation as the internet, you know, the huge movements, but really, you know, what are your questions? You guys, let's collaboratively design the next m unit, and here's what I'd like you to call me. Right. They're, they're gestures, but in a way, they're innovative. And you can tell they're innovative by how people respond to them. The great resistance that, that they're met with sometimes or the joy that they're received with or relief. Yes, I love that. So then can we talk a little bit before we close out this conversation um, about tradition and how we think about... I think of Fiddler on the Roof as soon as you said that. <laughs> I saw Tevye right there when you said that. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> so there we go. I'm not going to sing. I'm not, I have too much respect for our listeners, although now it's in my head, and I really want to. So, yes, like Tevye, <laughs> I am a fan of tradition. And um, we teach at a Jesuit university. Mm -hmm. And... Jesuit universities have a 500, 600 year, 500 year tradition of innovation, right? And so how do we think about when to retain something? Like what's our rubric? What's our decision tree? What's the way that we choose? We can't do everything all the time, right? And so how do we decide, here's a new thing I want to try, and here's the thing that I used to do on the second day that I'm not going to do anymore? So we think about men and women for others, the whole person. Mm -hmm. And as we, the human community, learns more and more about what a person is, the needs of the whole person, how people tell us who they are, that so our responses to that person have to change according to those self-perceptions, right? That, that there are, are constantly emerging needs that have to be met with care and equity and justice. As yeah. we learn more about people, we learn more about how to help them and serve them. And what we learn about people changes with context over time, exactly. right? So yeah. one of the things we're thinking about in 2022 is the fact that we're all emerging from two and a half years of acute, pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's an acute experience of public health trauma that we're responding to. And here's hoping that that context shifts to something better two or three years down the road. And some things that we need to do in order to show care for our students will be less I crucial. mean, what was remote learning at scale other than a massive foray into assistive technology? Yes. I cannot be physically present. There's something about my physical self 
that precludes me from being together with you in this space. Yeah. So we have to make a technology that will assist us in being able to do that. And a real theme in our work during the pandemic was, oh, I love that tool, but it doesn't provide captions. Or I love that interface, but you know the visually impaired won't be able to use that. Right. And one of the things that I really, really struggle with is people who are immunosuppressed, people with disabilities, people who for a wide variety of absolutely valid reasons did better in remote learning. Where have we left them now that we've returned to face-to-face classes? And I think while I'm happy with the compromise that I've arrived at for my set of 19 students this semester, I'm conscious that it might prove inequitable for some. This season, yes, we'll be looking at innovation. That's our theme for season three. Right. And we're thinking about it enthusiastically, skeptically, in 360 degrees. And so it's going to be really exciting. We've got some great guests lined up, and um, we hope you keep listening. Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twiceover1 or email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.